so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. Many issues in today's culture must be addressed by Christians, especially leaders within the church. At the ERLC National Conference, Andrew Walker hosted a panel about a few of those issues. The panel, Sexuality, Religious Liberty, and Cultural Engagement, featured Jennifer Marshall, Barrett Duke, and Eric Stanley. We hope this episode will help you think biblically about engaging with these important topics. I want to thank you all for joining us to talk about a really difficult, contentious, controversial set of issues, and that's sexuality, religious liberty, and cultural engagement. And these topics almost need no introduction because of what's going on in the media cycle, it seems, almost every single week. Whether you hear cases involving bakers or florists or photographers or strange new words like Obergefell. Uh, or the categories of sexual orientation and gender identity, uh, this seems to be one of the most pressing issues facing the church in terms of how we understand sexual orientation and, and this new phrase of gender identity, how it conflicts with religious liberty, and, and what we as Christians need to do here in America to stand up to have our voices heard on why our convictions matter and why they're worth having uh, the right to be shared in the public square. And to do that, I'm joined up here by... Uh, a great panel of friends and experts who are uh, well-equipped to help lead our discussion on these issues today. And to my left is Jennifer Marshall, who is a vice president at the Heritage Foundation. She helped leads the uh, Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. The next to Jennifer is my friend and colleague, Barrett Duke, who is the vice president for public policy and research at the ERLC. He helped leads our D.C. office. And the next to Barrett is Eric Stanley, who serves as, uh, with the Alliance Defending Freedom as Senior Counsel and Director for the Center for Christian Ministries. So Barrett, the first question for this panel I'm going to pitch to you. You've been with the ERLC for 20 years. Before that, you were a church planner. Um, can you provide us kind of a reflection on the timetable that we've seen over the past 20 to 25 years involving conflicts between uh, an increasingly, uh, and a culture that's increasingly more acceptive of the kind of the sexual revolution and uh, the place of religious liberty in that mix. Yeah, um, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us for this conference. It's been a great conference already. God is clearly uh, moving in his people's lives, and uh, I'm glad that uh, you're here to equip yourselves to be a part of what God wants to do, to be salt and light in this culture. Um, as Andrew said, um, uh, before I came to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, I uh, was a pastor. I started a church in Denver, Colorado, 
um, in the 80s and pastored it through the mid-90s, came to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in January 97. Um, and actually part of the reason I came to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission was because of my experience as a pastor watching what was happening in the culture even at that time um, as um, culture was clearly already in free fall at that point. And many people that were coming into our church were clearly biblically illiterate when it came to the questions of um, um, sexuality, when it came to uh, questions of, of uh, morality and culture, and the way the Bible was actually supposed to speak into their lives. Um, so, I mean, 20 years ago, you could, you could see where we were headed, and I wanted to come, and I felt led of the Lord to come to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission to help us equip the church for what certainly seemed like it was coming. Uh, probably the, the greatest surprise of all of it is how quickly it has overtaken us. And I, I think we can lay a lot of that at the feet of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has basically, in a number of cases, ruled on the question of homosexuality, sexual liberty, and it has kind of set up uh, this environment for others then to step in and um, basically elevate sexual rights to the highest standard to um, balance uh, personal freedom against. And at this point now, of course, we know in many instances, sexual liberty is actually now trumping religious liberty um, in the public square and in uh, social interaction. Um, and it's because of those particular Supreme Court decisions, as um, Andrew has noted, uh, that in many ways culminated in Obergefell, that we have an administration in many cultural institutions now that feel like they have permission now to advance that uh, sexual agenda even more rapidly, even to the point of declaring those of us who actually believe in a, a biblical uh, understanding of human sexuality are now labeled in many instances religious bigots <laughs> simply because we choose to believe uh, God's design for human sexuality rather than uh, the cultures and at this point the court-defined um, understanding of, of what human sexuality is about. Uh, so things have really ramped up in a hurry and uh, we're all, all of a sudden finding ourselves at the point of catch-up. Eric, the next question is for you. And can you paint for us kind of a legal landscape of the fallout that's happened after Obergefell? And maybe, you know, thinking through the landscape, through the, th through the grid of how this has affected the individual citizen, the church, and religious institutions and businesses. So kind of where are we post-Obergefell? I think actually uh, Justice Alito in Obergefell really gave us a clue as to where we are in this moment right now when he dissented and he said in his dissent that I assume that those who cling to the old beliefs about marriage can whisper them in the recesses of their homes and talk about them, uh, but that if they speak those beliefs in public, they risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such. And I think that's really where we find ourselves right now. And so if you talk about this in terms of where are we with individuals, uh, well, certainly we see a lot of cases post-Obergefell where individuals are kind of at the crux of, of legal problems because they're simply living out their faith in their everyday life when it comes to human sexuality. And they are, uh, so like examples of the, the Baronel Stutzman case, the Washington State Florist, who stands to lose everything personally and professionally, as I talked about last night. 
Uh, Jack Phillips Masterpiece Cake Shop in uh, Colorado is another situation where post Obergefell, there seems to be no middle ground for those who hold to a, a, a consistent biblical sexual ethic. Uh, in that case, it was very interesting that uh, what he uh, he owns his cake shop. It was his family thing. Actually, his his mother works there. There we are. I'll I'll try not to yell now. <laughs> his mother works there in the cake shop, and um, when the uh, Civil Rights Commission in Colorado found against him, and uh, they ordered re-education for all of his employees, including his 90-something-year-old mother, to re-educate her as to why uh, they should be making wedding cakes for same-sex wedding ceremonies. But, you know, so individuals, uh, there's more cases like that. Uh, I, think, I think back to even pre-Obergefell, uh, with the Elaine photography case that ADF litigated, the photographer in New Mexico who wouldn't participate in a same-sex commitment ceremony in New Mexico and was fined, uh, and she lost her case, and it was the Supreme Court decide, declined to hear it. But the New Mexico Supreme Court, one of the justices kind of lectured her and said, you know, there's a, there's a time in all of our lives where we must compromise, even if a little, to accommodate the contrasting values of others. That's the price of citizenship. And so in the New Mexico Supreme Court's eyes, the price of citizenship being the compromise of religious liberty and, and, and our, our religious values. So individuals are certainly, I think, primarily on the chopping block right now. That's really where we're seeing a lot. But we're, but we're also seeing it with institutions as well. Uh, ADF, I mentioned, is representing a church in Iowa. We're actually going to court next week on that to stop the Iowa Civil Rights Commission from enforcing its Civil Rights Act against a church. Uh, they seem to have this idea, and they actually put it into a brochure on their website that uh, anything that a church does that's open to the public, including a church service open to the public, means that that gives permission for the Iowa Civil Rights Commission to come in and regulate how the church can use its facilities, and potentially to do that in ways that are inconsistent with the church's religious beliefs, so forcing the church to open its changing rooms and its restrooms to members of the opposite sex. Uh, so we're filing, we filed a lawsuit about that. I think of uh, SB 1146 in California, the bill that basically would have driven out um, Christian colleges and universities from the marketplace, uh, that they could no longer require their uh, employees to sign a statement of faith in order to be employed there. They could no longer use their statement of faith as a criteria for admission into the university. Uh, it really was intended to drive Christian schools out of the marketplace altogether. The list could go on and on. Uh, but I, I think it, it was kind of summed up again for me recently by Justice Alito again uh, when he dissented after the Supreme Court declined to hear the case of the Stormans family, the Washington State pharmacists, who were forced by a pharmacy board rule there to stock and dispense Plan B, the abortifacient pill. Uh, and they lost their case, and the Supreme Court declined to hear it. And the problem with that case is, as Justice Alito said, he started out his dissent, and he said, this case is an ominous sign. And he kind of went through why this was an ominous sign that this was a targeted thing. You could refuse to stock and dispense Plan B, the, the morning after pill, for any reason, economic reason, convenience reason, but the, bill, the, the law targeted religious objections to stocking and dispensing Plan B. You could do it for any other reason except for religious or moral objection to it. And so as he kind of traced through that, then he said, uh, if this case is a sign of what is to come, those who value religious liberty have cause for great concern, is what he said. So I think that is true. I think we have cause for great concern. The fallout from Obergefell 
I, I, I remember many writing, and I'm sure you all do too, you know, when the Supreme Court was considering the marriage decision and when the marriage battle was kind of hot, everybody was saying, oh, don't worry, it, you know, it'll never affect churches, it won't affect religious institutions. Um, you know, this is just about the right of two people to love each other. That's all that this is about. And we're starting to see that after that is not the case. No. Hey, Andrew, can I just underscore the, the importance of those categories that you just mentioned and you've been talking about, Eric, the church, ministries, and individuals? If we believe, as we do, that religious freedom is much more than the freedom to worship in the privacy of your own church or home, if we believe that it is the free exercise of religion in all aspects of life, then we've got to be thinking clearly in each of these categories and articulating a case for religious liberty that protects the church, that advances the work of charities, religious charities in society, and preserves the right to exercise faith in our callings. And that, I think, is particularly important. That last category in particular is one that's often overlooked, and that it's going to be urgently important that pastors and church leaders be equipped to counsel their congregants about. Because we have seen just the beginning of the challenges in these wedding-related industries, the cases that you've been working on, Eric, the, the Baron L. Stutzman, the florist, and Elaine, the photographer. Uh, it is going to move through the professions. Already we're seeing conflicts in the field of medicine, uh, but counseling and teaching and so on. Every calling, every field of work is going to see these kinds of issues uh, come into to, to reality in the practice of everyday work. Pastors and church leaders need to be ready to counsel people through that. Yeah, if I could just add to, and Jennifer, you're exactly right on that. Uh, one thing I, I didn't mention, you talked about other callings that this is hitting. Uh, this is actually hitting the legal profession as well. So just a few weeks ago, the American Bar Association proposed a new model rule that would prohibit lawyers from discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And it actually would apply to speech that lawyers do. So this was actually the first time. So without getting too detailed, the ABA has its model rules. And generally what they do is they tie them to concerns like uh, the, the administration of justice, making sure that justice can be administered effectively, and that attorneys are competent to practice. This was the first model rule that was proposed that divorced its prohibitions from those concerns. So you can just merely speak out against a certain thing or advocate for maybe one man, one woman marriage uh, or advocate that gender is binary, that it's not fluid, and that would violate the law even if it doesn't have an effect on the administration of justice or the competence of an attorney to practice. So it is hitting the other professions. It's starting to make its way through. Jennifer, the next question is for you and... Most likely, if you haven't been living under a rock today, you've heard about this bill in North Carolina called HB2. There's been no small amount of controversy around this. What's really interesting around this bill is the amount of cultural pressure that has come with it in the form of corporations and businesses. And now the NBA removing the All-Star Game from North Carolina to kind of punish North Carolina for this new law. Can you talk about kind of the role that big business is taking in conflicts over religious liberty? And then in your answer, I know Heritage has kind of coined the term cultural cronyism. And I'd love for you, I think that's something that we ought to be saying more often, and just unpack what that means. Sure. I do think that the rise of cultural cronyism over the last couple of years is one of the most significant aspects of what we're talking about here today. 
And that is something that my colleague Ryan Anderson started calling uh, cultural cronyism is the term that he used to describe the fact that big business is suddenly getting into the game on religious freedom and using its outsized market share to try to influence uh, and, and pressure governments to do uh, to, to come along with this new sexual orthodoxy. It started as in a real big way where it affected the outcome back a couple of years ago when Arizona was making a small change to its Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, is a 20-year-old law that passed Congress nearly unanimously. Nothing passes unanimously except uh. naming post offices. <laughs> so this was widely, uh, it, the Southern Baptists and the ACLU supported it. President Clinton signed it. Ted Kennedy was a chief sponsor. It was a massively supported bill to protect religious freedom in America. And it's been very important in cases since then. Now, the interesting thing was that Arizona was making this technical change to strengthen its RIFRA. And business suddenly got in on the act and uh, defeated that opportunity to, to strengthen the RIFRA at the state level. And ever since then, whenever religious freedom laws have come up or been proposed, uh, we have seen big business trying to pressure government uh, to take its view of things. Uh, this is deeply concerning for the future of our democracy, for the future of us as citizens to be able to direct the course of events in our states and in our country. Uh, so it's something we definitely do need to be talking quite a bit more about. The irony here is that these big corporations that are taking this stance are free to do whatever they like with their bathroom policy. They're free to do whatever they like with their benefits policies and so on. And yet they want to stamp out that freedom for small businesses, for Baronel Stutzman, for Elaine Photography. Um, so there's an irony and an inconsistency there, and uh, the, these big corporate, uh, the cultural cronyism is really eroding the idea of a free market, uh, among, in addition to these concerns we have about the substance of their views um, on the sexual matters. Barrett, next question's for you. Can you talk to us about the legislative response to all of the pressures on religious liberty? What's being floated right now um, in Congress? And, and we can talk more than just about the sexual orientation, gender identity aspects of this, but the larger effort legislatively to protect conscience. Um, walk us through what proposals are out there and why they matter and why we should be more on the front lines of advocating for them. Yeah, a lot of people don't know it, but actually there are a lot of efforts in Washington to push back on this. Um, we've been involved um, well ever since I came to the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and even before trying to pass legislation that ensures um, the protection of the ability, as you rightly point out, not just to worship freely, but actually be able to practice your faith uh, freely in the public square and as part of um, your daily lives. Um, and, um, you know, I, I really wonder today if we could even get the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed if it were to come to Congress right now. And quite frankly, I don't think so. I think the climate has changed that much. Um, so I'm grateful for um, people who actually were uh, looking ahead and uh, planning ahead because RIFRA has become a really important legal tool in protecting uh, religious freedom. Today, um, we are trying to pass the First Amendment Defense Act, uh, which would protect people from 
uh, discrimination if they believe that uh, marriage is only the union of a man and a woman, and it would prevent people from uh, discriminating them against them on the basis of that belief. Um, it's a pretty straightforward and simple bill, and uh, yet uh, we're, we're having incredible difficulty uh, getting any uh, real activity on that in Congress. Um, and it's actually on both sides of the aisle because many Republicans are nervous even about uh, voting for the First Amendment Defense Act because they don't want to um, have that hung around their neck by others who would then accuse them, of, believe it or not, of being religious bigots. There's incredible pressure on uh, congressmen, even well-meaning and conservative congressmen, oftentimes even to do the right thing on some of these instances. Uh, but the First Amendment Defense Act, um, I would really encourage you, and by the way, um, you're not violating um, law to uh, call your congressman or your senator and uh, tell them you want to pass a bill. You're perfectly within your rights to do that. Your church is perfectly in its rights uh, to insist on passage of legislation, uh, to insist on the passage of the First Amendment Defense Act. And then there's also another bill called the Conscience Protection Act, uh, which basically does the same thing for people who uh, don't believe that they should be forced to participate in abortion um, that would protect their conscience rights not to be forced to participate or aid in abortion in any kind of way. And uh, we're working very hard on getting the Conscience Protection Act passed as well. Uh, the real problem with that is the Senate. We just can't find 60 votes in the Senate. And then we have a president who we really aren't convinced would sign it. We don't even know what, could be a, what that could be attached to that this president would actually sign if it also codified the Conscience Protection Act. Uh, so there are some really good legislative vehicles um, that a lot of us are working very hard to get past that would help provide at least some legal protections here in order for people of faith to actually be able to live out their faith uh, in their everyday lives and in their businesses. Um, but um, it's going to take the people in this room and thousands of others like you uh, actually to get those through Congress. You know, as we're talking about the First Amendment Defense Act, which is so important, thank you for bringing it up, the, it's very important that we be clear on what the Obergefell decision did and did not do. The Obergefell decision mandated that the federal government and state governments must issue same-sex marriage licenses. What it did not do was to insist that we as private citizens or in our private groups must change our views of marriage. This court did not do that, nor should we allow it to be interpreted in that way. And what the First Amendment Defense Act does is to make that abundantly clear. Government may not discriminate against those of us who continue to believe that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Eric, the next question is for you, and it seems to, to me that there's a national debate that's going on in the Washington circles, and then there's these, uh, these big battles happening at the state level. And that's maybe where the, the battle's happening most evidently. Can you walk us through some of these state battles, uh, and what have we learned from them? Has there been any good news that's resulted out of these state battles regarding religious liberty? Sure, yeah. Uh, it's been interesting to see, uh, obviously, I think... In my mind, I, I juxtapose some of these state battles. So, say, maybe take in, what happened in Indiana, for instance, and in, in the battle there to pass their laws uh, and kind of the governor caving in on that at the last minute and the law not being passed and the public outcry as a result of that. And juxtapose that with North Carolina uh, with HB2, 
uh, and the attempt really, or not no, the successful attempt of North Carolina to take back its state laws um, and to prohibit kind of a patchwork of non-discrimination laws across the state itself. Uh, that was a success. Uh, that was something that worked. Uh, something that's been unheralded recently uh, is Mississippi passed a very broad, probably the most comprehensive Religious Freedom Protection Act in the country. Uh, now, it's currently being challenged in court, but that passed. Uh, and it, it kind of is demonstrative in my mind of the idea that we can get some of these things through mm. if we work hard and if we try to posture it in the right way. And then, yeah, of course, we always have states like California. I mentioned the SB 1146. Uh, there, that battle there, I think, was really uh, illustrative in my mind of what can happen with a state that just kind of runs unchecked mm. and has an idea that religious liberty is not a value that should be protected but has to bow any time to sexual liberty. Uh, that bill, it, it was such a dangerous bill for Christian colleges and universities. It really would have, as I said, driven them out of the marketplace. What was interesting to see is how not only did the Christian colleges and universities, but also the churches and the pastors came together uh, and individual citizens in California came together to oppose that bill uh, and got the sponsor to actually kind of pull the guts of it out of it. Uh, and so it, it does have some problematic things in it still, uh, but it is nowhere nearly as bad as it used to be. And so I, I think that's some good news. Uh, the by Incidentally, the sponsor of that bill is sponsored another bill that has a chance of passage, SB 524 in California, that would... Uh, essentially take private groups, uh, as an example, a, a private group that has a, a group home for girls who have been victims of sexual trafficking uh, and would put them into the category of a state-sponsored group and would prohibit them from having discriminatory practices and statements of faith and things along those lines. So there are more out there, and we have to be vigilant about them. Uh, but I think that it is, um, it is encouraging to see that these battles are not just a fait accompli. You know, it's not just that uh, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Uh, and I think that that comes into to focus for me when I think about what a lot of people have said. And, and Jennifer, you've talked about this, the Utah compromise idea that, well, some of these laws are just inevitable. You know, it's inevitable that we're going to get a non-discrimination law. And so we just need to let it pass and try to get the best protection we can, the best exemption we can in here for it. And, and really what that does is it just gives up before you even start the battle. Right. It just, it, it gives up and, and there's no, there's no attempt to counter this. There's no attempt to say, no, this is the bad law to make the reasoned arguments for why it's a bad law. And people don't understand that it leaves so many behind as well. Uh, you might get a religious institutions exemption in a law, but what about the business owners? What about those in their callings mm -hmm. that would you know, be subject to this law and, and would maybe see their calling kind of go away or be subject to legal uh, ramifications and legal threats as a result of that. And then I think we're naive to understand and to think that the religious institutions exemptions that we get in this law, that those are going to last. We're naive to think that they won't come after the church. They will come after the church. They are coming after the church. Uh, it's just that uh, maybe the climate is not such that that's such a widespread battle right now. Uh, but it's very clear that there's no middle ground on these things. So I think we, we as a church, we as individuals, uh, as groups, as organizations, we have to take the, uh, the tack that these are not just done deals, uh, that when we stand and when we fight, more often than not, we win. Uh, and we can do that together most effectively. Yeah, California is a great example of that. If it hadn't been for people speaking up, 
on uh, that California bill, they would have passed that with all that bad language in it. And it's a really great example for us, an illustration for us, uh, that um, public pressure actually does still work. Um, if we're able to identify a specific thing uh, that we want to oppose and, and apply enough pressure, that actually does still work. And your comments on the Utah Compromise are actually absolutely right. You know, um, the effort is to protect the institutions, um, uh, enable them to continue to stay in business by, you know, being, being able to function according to their core religious values. But, you know, how, what do you do when you protect the institution that then tells the people they need to go out and live according to their faith, but you haven't protected the people so that they can actually go out into the public square and do that? Right. You know, it, it just... It just defeats the purpose of uh, if you have institutions that are protected and yet the people they're training aren't protected to go out and actually practice what it is the institutions are teaching them. Um, the, the very purpose for uh, that training has just basically been given away. And I'd, I'd say we don't give up any ground. If we lose ground, let's let somebody else take it from us, but let's not lose the ground and just give it up on our own. Yeah. Yeah, and if you think about Indiana, too, you know, I think if the governor could have survived maybe a 24-hour tweet storm, uh, uh, that that might have been able to let that law stand uh, as it has in North Carolina. And, you know, there's great defenses for these kinds of things, so we don't have to give that ground. So I want to play devil's advocate a little bit to the whole panel here. Uh, let's just say I'm an average citizen. I'm busy. I'm an employee. I'm a spouse. I'm a parent. This, you know, I, I'm aware of there's some religious liberty conflicts going on in the broader culture, but to me, that's just a culture warrior issue. It's not really affecting me. Uh, why? Why should I care about these conflicts over religious liberty? And I'd love, to, I'd love to hear everyone kind of offer an answer or dialogue with each other. Can I start? Absolutely. I brought my electronic Bible with me, and uh, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to um, share something with you here. Um, the, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's um, core passage is Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Um, but oftentimes people um, read the Sermon on the Mount and they don't get that far in that. That being salt and light is actually part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and it's actually a continuation of his uh, teachings in the Beatitudes. But we start uh, with the Beatitudes and we read these, this language, you know, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are gentle, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful and peacemakers. And we, we read all that kind of language, and uh, we get to this place where we just believe, well, we're just supposed to uh, kind of get along with everybody and encourage everybody um, and be this peaceful presence in the community. Um, but when you read on, then what does Jesus do? Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then keep reading, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. All of a sudden, that faithful presence in the community is bringing opposition. But why? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It was really eye-opening for me when I read that, that Jesus perceived of the church as a prophetic institution, not just as a pastoral institution. He actually perceived of us as a prophetic people, and he goes directly from that then into being salt and earth. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There's no call here 
to be salt. There's no call here to be light. There's a, an understanding that by virtue of being Jesus' disciples, we are salt and light. And the only thing he talks about here is the absurdity of being salt and not being used for what salt is used for, the absurdity of being light and then covering yourself up. Uh, we need to understand and we need to uh, recognize that while faithful presence in the community is a really good thing, that it also has to be attached to a message of righteousness that Jesus talks about and an understanding that God does have a set of moral values that while we are held to that standard uh, more highly that God holds all culture to and expects us to help bring those values and that moral clarity into the culture. And that's a prophetic activity, but Jesus was anticipating that we would be a prophetic people uh, in the culture. So we need to embrace that, and we need to do that in a, in a way that is still loving uh, and isn't uh, combative in nature, uh, but is still um, very uh, uh, confirmed in what we believe and what we believe God has taught very clearly uh, in his word. And we need to help the rest of society understand what those values are, how they translate into better lives for everyone if we live according to God's moral standards. And we need to be the people uh, that actually bring that in, out into the public square. Amen. Yeah. We, it really boils down to, I think, confessing base, the basics of Christian anthropology. We are created in the image of God, male and female, made for one another in marriage and community. And so this is our opportunity to joyfully confess those things. Uh, we're, we're being called upon to do that. Stated in, in a negative way, I guess we could uh, refer to Eric Erickson's quip that you will be made to care. This is going to be a challenge that comes very close to home for many people. And it also has to do with what I was articulating on the panel yesterday. We have fallen into a trap of putting political issues to one side, thinking that they are kind of hermetically sealed unto themselves. But, but really, politics, again, is about ordering our lives together, figuring out how we're going to solve problems, reconciling our differences, etc. And that means it can only partly be happening in Washington, D.C. or in our state legislatures. It really is something that goes on in boardrooms, in family rooms, in school boardrooms, and so on. And so it's, it's a, the, the entirety of a community participates in these questions of how we will order our lives together. And because of that, we can't just expect that we'll be able to turn the political TV off and ignore it and be set apart. It is, it, we are a part of solving these things together, and we yes. should not relinquish that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I would add, too, that you know, sometimes we, I've seen groups on our side use some fairly alarmist language, and it's not necessarily been helpful all the time. Uh, but I think that now is a time to not view statements that I'm about to make as alarmist. The statement is that religious liberty is under unprecedented attack now more than ever in the past. And the idea that, as Eric Erickson says, you will be made to care, or, or as uh, Professor David Gushy says, there is no neutrality, there is no middle ground, you cannot hide, the issue will find you, um, that is true. I, you know, I, I look at the clients that ADF represents in some of our cases they were just people trying to go about their lives, to faithfully live out the gospel in their everyday lives, to live the, the integrated life that the gospel calls us to live, where the gospel of Christ orders everything about us. It orders our thoughts, our minds, our actions, our behaviors, how we relate to other people, how we do that in our business, in the schools, 
it orders everything about our lives. It's, it's, we cannot live disintegrated lives as Christians. And that's all that they were trying to do. And now they're in the, a legal battle over their right simply to live out their faith freely. Uh, and so you may look at it and some may say, well, you know, yeah, that's just kind of a culture warrior issue or it's not something that I'm really keyed in on. We don't have that luxury anymore mm. where we can sit back and let somebody else take on the battle where we can sit back and say, well, Heritage is there, or ERLC is there, or ADF is there. Yes, we are. But you have to be there as well, because the time is short. So it seems to me that for local churches to kind of grasp what's going on, they need to have an understanding of developing a biblical sexual ethic, and then uh, within the walls of the church, discussing why religious liberty matters. So I would love to have all three of you discuss, if you could work up a strategy for churches to help equip their members on these issues to become champions in the public square, what sorts of things should churches be doing? Well, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I'll start out with the church itself, just to say that, um, you know, we came out a couple years ago with our guide, Protecting Your Ministry, um, that the church itself should lead in these efforts as a way of kind of setting an example so some of the things that we, uh, we say in there is the church to take the time to adopt uh, you know, or, or a, ch- a statement of faith on the issues of human sexuality, on the issue of marriage, uh, on the issues of life, that uh, that becomes something that the members then read and sign and agree with, and then it forms the backbone of everything you do as a church, your facility usage, your, your employment policies, all those kinds of things. And so I, I think as a first step, the church itself ought to lead by example in that. Yeah. It, this is abundantly important, and Eric and his group at ADF are doing a fantastic job of equipping churches to walk through that. I think that process must begin with a reflection on what do we actually believe about these issues. Uh, not enough churches and Christian communities are clear about that. And then how are we forming the next, how are we forming our adults, first of all, but how are we forming our next generation about these things? Do we kind of, do we have sort of uh, study guides and curriculum and catechism type tools to help form people in a correct understanding of what the Bible says about human sexuality and what it means to be created in the image of God? got to be thinking very earnestly about those formation issues and then uh, figuring out, you know, how to be equipped for the coming storms, helping people think about what's going to be down the road in their profession and guide them before the pressure mounts to take the stand that will be most faithful uh, to their understanding of what God requires of us in this area. You know, what I would hate to see happen is for the church to become an angry institution. Um, and that deeply concerns me because I, I think there is the danger here uh, for us to become an angry people and uh, to uh, see the, the world fighting against us and to get our backs up, basically, and just decide we're going to fight them. They, you know, they hate us, so uh, we're going to uh, take them on. Uh, and I'm really concerned that we not become an angry people. Um, I don't think that's the Lord's vision for his church. Um, and we need to make sure um, that while we recognize that the culture has basically uh, gone incredibly astray, that these are still people um, that Jesus died for, that God still loves, um, and we need to respond to them with love. And I think we have to start by beginning uh, to ask God to let these people who are very opposed to us still let them into our hearts so that we respond to them in love and not with a 
with an angry, combative tone, but understanding that we simply recognize uh, that they're in error because they're lost oftentimes, you know. And uh, we need to redouble our efforts, in my opinion, to make sure we bring the gospel uh, back out into the culture and begin to win more people to the Lord. Uh, But then also we exercise our responsibility, as I said, as salt and light in a way that is convincing, not just at the emotional level, but also at the intellectual level and at the reasonable level. Uh, The things that we are proposing are not radical. You know, I mean, some of the culture thinks they're radical, but um, until recently they've been pretty normative. Um, And God certainly thinks they're normative. And we should be thinking of them as normative as well. And then out of love for uh, people who are opposing us, we need to say, wait a minute, you need to understand the ramifications of the direction that you're taking us. If you destroy the family, where does society go from there? If you break the foundation of the family, where does society go from there? We'd, there's no place to go uh, from there uh, as we weaken the family. Um, and in many ways, I think pastors don't, have, don't believe they are adequately equipped to help their churches do that. And I don't think pastors should think they need to do all of that work. There are all kinds of resources available already. I mean, there are three institutions up here on the stage that are creating resource materials for you and your churches, uh, simply now that you can bring into your churches and help you equip yourselves uh, for this work in a way that isn't angry, uh, but that is effective. And um, uh, you need to come alongside your pastors and help your pastors um, uh, find the people in the church that can help do this work in the church and help do the work of education in the church so they don't feel like they have to do it all themselves. And then organize and find the issue that you're most, compa- most passionate about. Don't try to take on everything. Find an issue you believe God has especially put in your heart and uh, devote some of your time and energy to it and find other people who are like-minded. And there are enough of us still in this country Uh, that it's possible for us to turn this around if we will simply decide culture is worth it. Barrett, that's such an important counsel against anger. And I would also add to that that the church must not be fearful either. Mm. We should be confident in the way that God has made the world for its flourishing. And that what we're seeing emerge here is internally incoherent. It cannot stand. It is morally unsustainable. So let's redouble our efforts to explain the goodness of the created order with regard to these issues and love our neighbor in the midst of this and push through what is an unsustainable way of of looking at human beings because it is not true to the way that we have been made. Yeah, let me just add, too, I love what uh, my friend John Stone Street at the Colson Worldview Center says about this. He says, outrage is not a strategy and despair is not an option for the Christian. Instead, we should be people of hope. That's what we're called for. We're called for hope. Uh, And I just echo what you said, Barrett, about pastors, and specifically just a charge to pastors to uh, begin to help to shape and form the consciences of your people in regard to the issues of religious liberty and life and marriage. That, I think, can be done in a number of different ways. As Barrett said, there's a ton of resources out there about that. But if you as a pastor are not shaping and helping to form the consciences of your congregation— then those consciences are being formed by somewhere and somebody. Uh, Churches are very intentional about certain things. We're intentional sometimes about soul winning. We're intentional about discipleship. Let's be intentional about discipleship in this area as well. Thanks for joining us on the ERLC podcast. 
You can subscribe to the podcast and find more information about sexuality and religious liberty at ERLC.com. Don't forget to join us next week when we hear about how to use sports to engage with the culture. 